Peter Schwitzer? Oh, yeah, it's the guy I listened to when I made my first billion. He's one clever son of a... Five, four... We're online. The hottest internet station. It's time for The Switzer Show with the guy who makes getting richer easier than running up a credit card bill, Peter Switzer. Well, don't you love that introduction? I get uh, really excited every week, Peter. It's, it's show number two, but yes, a like, lovely you know, Remember, this is a money show and people allegedly are bored by money, but with an introduction like that, that is absolutely fantastic. Now, Paul, today we're going to get you to check out what happened on the stock market because there were a few quite sensational things that happened over the weekend, particularly Donald Trump and the UK and France bombing Syria. Uh, and I thought the stock market could be pretty nervous today. And we've also got Margaret Lomas coming on the program to try to tell us what's it like to actually buy property with other people. But before that, let's quickly do a stock market uh, catch up. Did we go down today with the bombs? Didn't go down today with the bomb, Peter, or the bombs, I think. Uh, some argument about how many hit targets, I think. That's always happened. But, yeah. uh, but look, yeah, we're sort of breezed through the uh, the bombing of Syria and moved on. The market's up a little bit, up about 12.3 points as we come right into the close mm. in about a minute or so. But uh, look, yeah, um, I started the week on a reasonably positive note. I, I guess what our market's going to focus on Australia, at least, we're going to look very closely what's going on in the US because reporting season is uh, underway there. Yep. And we need a really positive strong lead from the US to uh, really give us a bit of momentum. And they had an ordinary week, didn't they, for the first week of reporting? Yeah, I think the bank results, although they beat expectations both on terms of top line and bottom line, there were some question marks around uh, the ability to continue those earnings. Mm. And uh, so th there's still more to come. Obviously, we're only in the first really one or two days of the US reporting cycle, but we need that sort of momentum to come through to our market locally. I think the other thing we've got, of course, here is the Royal Commission into Financial Services. It started its second sort of round of, uh, of uh, hearings, and they'll go for the next two weeks. So focus for hearings today and for, the, and for next week as financial advice. Mm. And so we might see um, some interesting... <laughs> I'm sure you will. There's been some dodgy performances by financial advisors in the past. Yeah. I'm sure there'll be some big bad stories. Well, look, I think that whether they can be worse than what we expect. I mean, obviously, what we did see when the commission held its first round of, uh, of hearings, which were into consumer finance, mm. that had quite a bit of impact on sentiment on the banks over those two weeks. Yeah. And I guess that's the sort of thing for you, both you and I like the banks, but mm. uh, they've got to dodge these bullets. And mm. if, uh, who knows what could come out of the inquiry? I mean, I think ultimately in the day, in the long term, it's not going to have a huge impact on share price, but it certainly affects short term sentiment. So banks today were up uh, strongly early on. They're finished uh, probably a little unchanged across the board. Commonwealth Bank is actually down, but the others are. A sort of marginally positive. So, but that's going to be a bit of a negative potentially in our market the next two weeks, Peter, to watch out for. And then we have a very high Aussie dollar. We need that Aussie dollar to come a bit lower. So, mm. I guess our market wants to rally, but it needs some positive stimuli to do so. Yeah, and we've got the job numbers on Thursday, and they're expecting 25,000 jobs. So, that'll be an interesting one for the market to look at. And, Paul. Um, that will be the 18th 
consecutive month of, of job increase, if yeah. it proves to be true. Yeah. Although I get these consecutive months confused between the job numbers and the RBA, but I think, no, it, I think, I think it's right. 18th for jobs. Yeah, I think you're right. And, and what I think is very good is that historically job numbers were like lag indicators indicating that the economy has already done well and this is the, sort of the, the benefits that come from a good economy. But the economy hasn't quite got there yet, yet the jobs are turning up. And I, I think there's a report out today saying that wage rises in Australia are looking a lot better this year than last year. Well, that will be good news for the government as it comes into the budget, which I think is Tuesday the 9th of May. Was well, the second correct. one in Tuesday? Yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, look, that's pretty important because you, you've got to imagine that as they leak, as they start to get ready for the election, if not later this year, sort of in the first half of next year, perhaps you know personal tax cuts. Mm. And so the assumptions they make about things like the, the uh, level of wage increase and also what happens on company tax rate, they'll have a big, big focus on how much uh, mm. they'll be able to give away as a tax cut because some of the conservative commentators will still be out there about the budget deficit. They'll yep. have to balance their sort of war chest to give away versus the war chest that the ALP is, has accumulated or is accumulating with some of its proposed yeah. tax changes. And they've got a lot because they're hitting a lot of retirees left, yeah, right and self, centre. self-funded retirees, not a lot of sympathy there from uh, the ALP at the moment because you're going to hit it pretty big. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I guess it's going to be spent on schools and hosp- and, health- and healthcare. Okay, <laughs> Paul, well, let's, let's just wait for the budget to turn up. I'm sure. I'm like, running ahead of myself. Yeah, I'm getting excited are. for the budget. Yeah, We're still but, three weeks away. But I reckon there'll be a lot of people out there wondering, you know, given your background, you know, the guy who started Comsec for CBA, stockbroker of the year many years ago. I won't ask how many years ago that was. But if your daughter came to you, Paul, and said, Dad, how should I invest in the stock market? What, and by the way, has she ever asked that question? Answer that one first. Well, both two of them, three of my actually, all my all my daughters have investments in the stock market. Yeah, but did they come and ask you how to do it? I'm just trying to remember who's who provide the financial, <laughs> the <laughs> finance, I should say. Uh, look, yeah, I don't think we've quite isn't had that conversation. How, yeah, yet. Isn't it funny how our, our kids don't often ask us? The things that we're actually good at, you know, like there's a lot of stuff they might ask is like, you know, can you give us a hundred dollars to go out on a Saturday night? But and that's a question you prefer not to get. But you'd like it if your daughter said, "Dad, I would. How, how should I invest in the stock market?" So let's imagine she's listening and tell us how. If someone wanted to start, how would you recommend they start nowadays? I would, first of all, Peter, I'd be saying to my daughter or a friend's daughter, whoever it was, that think about the stock market for as a way to perhaps help fund that first deposit for the home. I still think for someone in their 20s and 30s, that's the most important place to start saving. Mm. And so perhaps uh, look at the stock market as a place that could grow over sort of a five to 10-year period. Yep. Uh, because probably at some stage you want to cash out and use it to, to put into the first home if you yep. haven't already. Yep. So it probably means not too aggressive, so some reasonably uh, common household name, blue chip type companies, they've got a bit of growth and got some dividends because dividends can still be pretty tax effective at that age. Yep. Uh, so that's how I'd probably be saying, and if, if not some, a portfolio of a few companies, then looking at maybe uh, an ETF or Swiss or something that gives some sort of blended exposure. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's much easier for younger people to, to get involved in the stock market with exchange-traded funds um, like the ASX 200 index ones, STWIOZ, and also our own fund, SWTZ, Switz. That puts together a whole lot of dividend 
paying companies. And as you're right, if you blend those together, it gives younger people an exposure to the stock market. And I think over time, you do learn a lot over time, Paul. Like, Go back in your younger days and try to recall the biggest mistake you made in the stock market. Yeah, I, I, I Why had, did you make it and how much did you lose? <laughs> I, I had two big mistakes. One probably didn't turn out that disastrous. I think my first big mistake was uh, falling in love with a little company called Woodside back yeah. in 1978 or yeah. 79. It was still an it's, old company. It's still a lot, hmm. Well, it's never quite lived up to expectations, but I did actually invest in that and get out a little bit too early. But I did believe the whole sort of dream about this massive gas reserve in mm. Australia and how a company like Woodside could uh, could, t- could could leverage that and yeah. actually build something great for Australia. It probably has over time, but it just took such a long time to get there. Mm. And I think the price I bought it at was probably... I could have got it a lot cheaper five years later. So that was probably the first. Well, you my first big mistake. You probably might remember this. I'd never gone the stock market. I was given a tip by... Lance Lay, I'll, I'll, I'll dob Lance in, but he was only a schoolboy at the time. <laughs> I was taking a tip from a schoolboy. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was Westfield Capital Corporation, which is probably the only Westfield thing that ever didn't do any good. Well, <laughs> I, that probably tells you something. I'll tell you another tip, uh, another uh, thing that occurred to me, which I have recalled, and I invested in a so-called cash box. Hmm. And these sort of companies come and go and you see them sometimes and they come up with an idea and they say, we're just going to take $2 from you (laughs) and we're going to invest it for you Uh, in all sorts of newfangled ideas and technology. And of course, like a lot of cash boxes where you get sort of sucked into the hype of the promoters uh, and their vision and sometimes all the media hype that goes with it. There's often a lot of fees that go into creating the the company up front and... uh, so t- these tend to happen in, in in sort of late market, late mature bull mm. markets. And uh, do you think Blue Sky al- Alternatives that fund yeah, has sort of fallen into a bit of that? It's of probably fallen a little bit into that category. Mm. Um, my cash box went broke eventually. It was, took all the money, vested in in co- whole of the time internet companies yep. way before their time, uh, and nothing happened. And of mm. course, it was liquidated. So I put two dollars in, or bought a thousand shares for a couple of thousand dollars, and ended up with next to nothing. Mm. So the best so way of learning is that Paul, lose some money. Learning, but I, I, I believed all the hype, and of course the hype was just hot air. Yeah. Uh, and I, I see that all the time because I'm always sort of interested. I get questions every day from subscribers uh, about companies. Mm. And look, they're not always about the companies that you and I would invest in. Yeah. Often they're the latest whatever's hot yeah. and fashionable. Wild and wacky ones. And uh, not, eight out of ten times they're companies I've never heard of. And mm. you think, oh. Is that what's currently doing the rounds at the moment on the chat rooms? Look, sometimes they work, but more often by the time a lot of small investors find out about them, they've already had the best part of the run. Yeah. And people are saying to you, well, what's left in it? You're saying, well, there's a company. It's got some great ideas, but it's already priced to perfection. So what's your chances of making a lot more money? Mm. Uh, Probably very little. In in future weeks, we'll talk about how you work out when is the right time and the bad time to to go into a stock market. Well, we'll just go to a break, Paul. We'll be back in just a moment. A word from our sponsors. 
Have you got a home loan? Do you know what you're being charged? Check your rate and if it's more than 3.89%, call us at Switzer Home Loans. Our rate for a variable home loan is 3.89%. That's right, 3.89% is all you'll pay. Interested? Call 1300 664 339 or Google Switzer Home Loans. Okay, we're back now and uh, joining us, Paul, is our favourite princess of property, Margaret Lomas from destiny.com.au. Margaret, thanks for joining us. Just a little bit of a gremlin here while we pull Margaret in. I'm sure Margaret will join us shortly, Peter, um, and we'll get that sorted out. But look, just to continue where we were a minute ago about mistakes. Now, I gave you one of my big mistakes. What's... uh, What's your biggest ever investment mistake? Well, the first mistake wasn't a big one. I, I, I wasn't really a, a big player of the stock market. But I'll save that for next week because I think we've got Margaret on the line right now. Margaret, are you there? I'm here. Great stuff. Thanks for joining us, Margaret. Oh, you're welcome. So uh, we're very interested to hear what you, you, you want to talk about today, namely buying property with other people. Do you see this very often? I see it happen all the time and largely it comes about as a result of people who really want to get into the property market either as an investor or as an owner-occupier and just can't seem to raise enough funds to do it on their own. And so they think it's a good idea to go into business essentially with someone who's not their spousal or life partner. So I'm not talking about obviously what you do with your husband or wife or someone who you've set up a permanent life with i'm talking about the thing you do with someone who might be a friend might be a relative or might be another unrelated party to you yeah so uh, do they tend to be sons and daughters with mums and dads and and do you ever see instances of syndicates you know where a couple of friends get together and think well let's put our money together and jump in on the the house price boom in sydney and melbourne Exactly. You get people who might think, well, I want to get into property and so does my sister, so how about we go together? Uh, You might think, well, how about I get in with mum and dad? You know, I can sort of maybe even pay them rent or pay them back at some point in time. Or, you know, this person who has the same interest in in property investment as I do, why don't we go in together? But most people don't understand the serious drawbacks. Obviously, the benefit is that you get in sooner, but there are serious drawbacks. And because I know you love numbers so much, I've numbered them as six main drawbacks. Okay, start right at the top, number one. Okay, so the first one is that you can trust yourself, you know that, but can you trust that other person? Now, what I mean by that is that you know that you can afford to meet the repayments and in times of stress like those periods of vacancy, you think you've got enough money to be able to meet the shortfall between what comes in and what goes out. You know your job's secure and you know you're always going to have a steady income, but can you be just as sure about the other person that you're buying with. You know, you don't exactly know whether they have the same tenure of employment. You don't know whether they're going to be around for the long term. What about if suddenly their life circumstances change? 
So you go in and you've agreed on a, a time or a, a time horizon for investing. You've said to each other, okay, let's do this. And after five years, we'll review it. And then your friend or your cousin or your sister suddenly meets that person who they become madly in love with and they decide that their future life is in Rio de Janeiro or London or somewhere else and they really need their money back before there's been time for it to perform. And that's okay with them because they've met Mr. Wright or Mrs. Wright and they've, they're wealthy and they don't care about the money. But your money's tied up there and you don't need to get out at that point in time. So that whole trusting and whether or not you have a matching investment goal is a very important number one. Okay, number two. So number two, I just call this difficult finance, financing arrangements. The thing is, where all parties are bringing in the same amount of money as a cash deposit and they've got a joint loan secured by only the property in question, so the one being purchased, then things can be relatively simple, I guess. All parties pay their required portion of the debt, they will get their own share of the income, and they complete their own separate tax returns and claim their own tax deductions at the end of the year. But where one party has their share of the deposit tied up as, say, equity in another property, so it might be that you have to raise the equity out of your own property, then first of all, that's got to be released in some form another or another as a separate debt. Most banks aren't going to cross-collateralise a security against a property owned by one party to buy a property for that party and other people as well. So you want to raise that money, you've got to separately collateralise other property. Um, and, you know, I guess the other thing about that is that all parties involved are cautioned against doing this anyway because what happens is once you borrow with another party, it indelibly ties you to them in a way that you might not like. So you're tied to them for the rest of your life. Mm. Uh, and what this means is that their loan is your loan. So being able to separate that financing arrangement can be really, really tricky. Now, it's also useful to note here that when you sign a mortgage document for a debt where another party's involved, you become jointly, severally, jointly and severally responsible for the repayment of the debt. So that leads me to number three, which is what's yours is mine, including all your debt. So what that means is that because you're jointly and severally responsible for any loan you take out with other people, the commitment to the entire loan rather than half of it is going to be considered when you're establishing your serviceability for any future bank loans. So say you and I, Peter, went in together and we bought a property, we're quite happy because we've got a loan and both our names are on that loan and we're servicing it okay, mm. but then I want to go and buy something else just for myself. I don't want you involved in that. Yep. I want to go out on my own and buy another property. Well, when the bank looks at whether I can afford that other property, they're going to consider that entire loan that I have with you as if you're not on it. So they won't just consider my half of it because my name's on the whole loan. Yeah. I'm jointly and severally responsible for it. And that could eat into my ability to borrow to continue my own property portfolio on my loan. So it's like, it's like, it's like a, not a black cloud, but a grey cloud that follows you when you start to look for other loans for other investments. Absolutely. Mm. And the other thing is that while you might say, okay, but surely if they're going to consider 
that that entire loan is mine. They'll consider that the entire rent is mine for serviceability, but no, they don't. No, they only consider your half of the rent of that property because at law, your your name is only on half the title. Mm. So that can be a big problem for people and it could limit your ability to borrow in the future. Okay, number four. Number four. Now, this one is important to me because imagine if the equity in your shared property grew really quickly. So, Peter, you and I are both smart. We bought this property and all of a sudden we've done it just before a boom. The property doubles in value and we think, well, we're both now worth $300,000 more each. The only thing we can do that is buy again together because we jointly own that equity. So even if I think, look, I'd really like to take my share of that equity and buy something else, the only way I can do that is to sell at that time. Mm. So unless I want to keep buying with you, and you might say, Margaret, I don't want to buy with you anymore. So I'm stuck with you, Margaret. Am Am I stuck with you? Oh, We're gee. stuck with each other. <laughs> hey, well, that's, pretty, that's a pretty good deal for you, but I don't know about me. But go on. <laughs> you, know, you know what else about I, this? I think, Margaret, I might have to umpire here. <laughs> <laughs> the other problem with this, of course, is that I might not want to liquidate right now, or you might not want to liquidate right yeah. now, because you say to me, well, Margaret, you know me, I earn an impossible amount of money every year because I'm so hugely successful. And if I sell now, I'm going to pay big capital gains tax on my portion. I would have to say that, I think, Margaret. I would have to say that, but go on. Exactly. And I might say, but Peter, I don't earn anything at all, so I want to sell now because this is the best year for me. I'll have hardly any capital gains tax on my share and I want to get out. So you can begin to see where the problems start Mm. to really come in where because we're not necessarily always wanting the same things or in the same place together, we're stuck with each other. All right, number five. Number five, what about if you do decide you want to get out but can't both agree? So you say, I'm out, Margaret, and I say, but I don't want to get out yet. Well, unfortunately, we have to both get out if you want to go or we have to both stay in if I want to stay in. So if you want to get out, it's rare that both people agree that now's the time, let's get out now. Okay, number six. And there's one last thing, and this is the thing that I think really, really affects relationships with people, and that is that owning an investment property isn't without its hard work. So you think about it, there's rent that you have to equip, leases that you have to get signed, property managers to oversee, repairs to approve, there's accounting to do, there's decisions, decisions, decisions to be made all the time. What if you suddenly find you're doing all the work and that other party's doing nothing and all of a sudden it seems unfair that you shouldn't have to share that growing equity that per- with that person because you're the one who's invested most of your time in that investment property. But they're entitled to exactly the same share as you unless you've signed an agreement or taken out a title in unequal shares. But people rarely do that. So I might think it's really unfair, Peter, because you're flitting off all around the world doing all sorts of stuff while well, I'm here holding the baby, which is our joint investment property, and yet we're both getting exactly the same amount of money out of it at the end of the day. So that becomes a big problem, and it can cause all sorts of risks in relationships. So, you know, and it, it, that's fine because if the person was your friend before you started investing and you suddenly don't like them anymore, well, they're a friend, you probably got more. 
But if it's your sister or your brother or your cousin, that can be uncomfortable for the rest of your life. All right, Margaret, uh, I want to ask you in a few moments about, well, if a group of people wanted to form an investment company and you put a whole lot of legal conditions in uh, to buy lots of properties, and I'm sure some of your people have thought about that. I'll ask you about that in a second, but John from... um, from uh, CBD Sydney has asked this question, why do we have to pay stamp duty and will the governments or various state governments uh, do away with it um, uh, over time? Okay, well, I'm sure the answer to the why is pretty easy to answer because governments make an incredible amount of money from purchase stamp duty. And at this point in time, really the only proposition to replace purchase stamp duty is a broad-based land tax that everybody pays regardless of whether you live in a property or not. Now, I know I'm going to be very unpopular when I say that I'm actually in favour of a broad-based land tax, just as I was in favour of the GST when it was first mooted, because to me, it's a consumption tax. So you're paying for your use of the land. It can be structured in such a way that land tax is paid a little bit every year while you own the property. And when it transfers to the next property person, they pay a little bit every year. And if they have use of that land for 20 years and I only have use of that land for two years, then I should only have to pay a little bit for my two years of use. And they should have to pay a lot more for their 20 years. But if they can pay it every year over time, then I think that's a very fair arrangement. Well, Margaret, uh, Margaret I must admit, we're going to have to talk about that down the track. Like, the three of us in the studio here are pretty gobsmacked at your outrageous suggestion, but I know you would have thought it through. So let's definitely pick up on that maybe next week, uh, the, the argument okay. for land tax. But it's a very interesting one. Paul, what do you reckon? Uh, uh, look, I think there was another part of that question, Peter, uh, was also why to why do we have to have uh, stamp duty on on land but not on shares? Mm. And I think that's now just an historical accident that there was enough pressure from the ASX and others over many, many years to abolish stamp duty on shares. Uh, and I guess also shares were purchased in smaller amounts that we're now free of any stamp duty, even on both listed and unlisted shares. But as you say, Margaret, it's a huge source of revenue for the state governments and I don't think they're about to give it away. No. And they cop it up front as well. And every time a property changes hands, there's another tax on basically the original amount as well as the amount that it's grown in value. So maybe there should be some case for thinking about stamp duty as being an up stamp in the way you do when you refinance a mortgage in the old days when we had mortgage stamp duty. If you refinance, you only paid an up stamp for the extra so maybe that would be fairer hmm. if we had a stamp duty for the first buyer and then the net subsequent buyers are just upstamping on whatever value has been gained. Hmm. Well, I'll certainly follow That's this up. Policy. It's not a bad idea, but I will follow that one up, Margaret. I think a lot of people would be interested in debating that one. We've got another email in from Viv from Alexandria in Sydney, and uh, he or she asks, are the new developments around Ultimo, Piermont, worth a million dollar plus do uh, they believe that, that like Ultimo is an area that will increase in value over time? Mm, 
look, I don't think we've got a lot of areas in Sydney where we can say that they will fundamentally increase in value at a great enough rate to make the loss that you're going to get from holding them worthwhile just in the coming few years. Mm. So you've got to understand that on a million dollars, you're not going to get a very high return. It's probably going to be somewhere in the realm of about a 3% return. Now, that property is going to cost you about 6% to hold. While you think about the fact that you've got to pay the mortgage, you will, and if you don't have a mortgage, you've still got to pay for the loss of, of other income you could get on the money if you had it elsewhere, plus the cost of holding a property. And when it comes to a, a, a unit or an apartment, it's bigger again because you do have that ongoing body corporate fee on top of all of that. And you've got property management fees and a whole pile of things. So if we said that 6% at least is the amount of holding costs with a 3% return, the 30% uh, tax write-off, for, the, for, for some of it, that still leaves you paying 2% over and above on what you buy every year to hold it. Mm. Now, that means that what that area has to do, it has to grow by the 2% and then the other 6 or 7% that you need to make it worthwhile for you to hold that asset over something that could give you a better return. And when you start to look at those numbers, you realise that this means that Sydney's got to continue to go through the boom that it's just been having. Yeah, which is highly unlikely, Margaret, isn't it? Highly unlikely. And very few people sit to think about it in that way because when they buy property, they say, oh, Sydney's fabulous. You know, it's done such a great job over the last couple of years and I've missed out. I need to get in now and I need to be part of that. But you won't be part of it when you look at the true cost of investing and whether or not that can deliver in the coming couple of years. And I would say no. And in answer to the direct question, are they worth, worth a million? I would have to say no to that as well. Okay, Mark, before you go, I read that you've got a TV program coming up soon. I do. I have a web-based TV program. Yeah. And we are starting propertyinvestingtv.com. Hmm. And in addition to a program that's a little bit like the old Your Money, Your Call that I used to host on Sky News Business, where we take and answer all of our viewer questions and help out with everything we can. On top of that, we're going to be doing specific topics every week. We might even branch out and get you, Peter, on and you, Paul, on and do some extended content like that. But there's going to be a broad range of different shows delivered through that website on different kinds of topics. So it's not just my show, it's more than that. And it's all free-to-air content. So I'm really, really... A little annoyed that I'm not getting that opportunity at the moment to deliver that education that you know is really important to Mm. me. So I worked out what I could do about it and I thought, let's do web TV. Fantastic. Now, Margaret, uh, thanks for joining us. We'll catch you next week. And we will talk about investment companies, you know, people joining together and and buying properties. And also we'll ask you some of your favourite areas. You don't like Ultimo at the moment, but let's talk about some favourite areas that you like right now. How's that? It sounds great. Mark, thanks for joining us. Thank you. That's Margaret Lomas from Destiny Financial. Have you got a home loan? Do you know what you're being charged? Check your rate and if it's more than 3.89%, call us at Switzer Home Loans. Our rate for a variable loan is 3.89%. That's right, 3.89% is all you'll pay. Interested? 
Call 1300 664 339 or Google Switzer Home Loans. Okay, so that's the show for today, Paul. We should have a little bit of an apology. We had a, a technical glitch. Our, our American supplier of the radio program seemed to have a streaming problem. Well, they did, and we're going to get better at this, Peter. I think that's the main thing, and, and the thanks to our uh, production staff. We did actually sort of start the show talking about uh, how to invest, and I, I, I have been encouraging our production staff to think about the share market. Mm. One day they'll come up and ask you or I, Peter, what they should invest in, but we're not quite there yet. Yeah. But hopefully some of the discussion we had about that will be useful to Yeah, and, uh, I, and I just home. think, Paul, you're right. I, I think it's just so much easier now with, uh, you know, Companies like Comsec and NAB Trade, people can actually just basically go on the website and sign up really quickly. When we were young people, we had to go to a stockbroker and they used to charge you an arm and a leg and you had to sort of cop their advice and they would tell you to buy and tell you to sell. It's so much better nowadays, isn't it? Yeah. And we can thank you for that as well. <laughs> we can thank some people for that. Uh, but look, yeah, it's really important if you've got uh, uh, you know, at young adults at home, I would encourage them to open an account. It costs nothing with Comsec or NAB Trade. At least start to develop an interest. I think one of the big lessons about being an investor is getting an interest, and I think that's something you and I look back and mm. say, "Well, I'm, I thank my parents at least for helping me." And mm. I think it's I'm, that's why I'm a better investor today than I, when I was when I started. So, and a, a favourite chart of mine, Paul, ten thousand dollars between uh, nineteen seventy four, wasn't it? Two thousand nine yep. turned into about four hundred and fifty three thousand dollars. By just letting it ride. Well, maybe we should. That's a good place to start next week when we catch up uh, at the same time on the same channel, Peter. Exactly right. So, if you want to actually send us a question, send it to info at switzer.com.au and put in the subject box money question or make me rich. Now, money question it should be. I look forward to catching up with you next Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Thanks for joining us. <laughs>